0: to the next community podcast i'm angelo luciani along with laura whalen
1: hello everyone
0: and from tech reckoning john troyer hey there hey guys good to be with you uh just to give you an update on the temperature here in toronto i i believe this morning it was a minus 32 with the wind chill so it's cold
1: <laughs> oh that's too bad it's like 70 degrees fahrenheit here sunny blue skies no clouds <laughs> in fort lauderdale thanks for that you're welcome <laughs>
0: On today's podcast, our guest is Wes Kennedy, who's a systems engineer in the healthcare technology space, and we had a great and insightful chat with him. Uh, a few things uh, stood out in the discussion. One of the things we, we spoke about were, were some of the challenges he faced in a traditional environment, some technical, some political, but it was interesting to hear his take on on some of the things he faced as he uh, grows his career in, in IT.
1: Yeah, I really like, uh, you know, how he gave us his vision and really talked about it from a business perspective, talked about this type of a technical department from a business perspective. You know, you could tell he's got a lot of experience and he's kind of pulled it together into this high level view.
0: One of the reasons we brought Wes on to the podcast today was because he wrote, wrote a blog post called Using Nutanix Two Years In. It's his experience with Nutanix, the technology the support team, uh, everything around that that encompasses that sort of ecosystem. So it was great insight, got a lot of attention uh, on the um, social media. I even recall him um, mentioning on, on Twitter, wow, he, he was super impressed with the, the amount of retweets and people going over to his blog to check out the article. So that was, that was really good. Well, Angela, it was great that he was willing to be that open about uh, how his data center is run. I
2: don't know if everybody is feels that comfortable sharing. I thought some of his stories were interesting. Things have been going well. I love the stuff he said about the procurement aspect of it. The fact that it you know scales over time, node by node. Uh, and I thought his stories about not having a storage admin were also pretty interesting.
0: One of the highlights from the article too is he praises uh, Nutanix support for, for going uh, above and beyond at times to help him work through an issue deliver on something so that was really um it was great for him to call them out because they do a a lot of good work the support teams are sometimes the the unsung heroes in in it so that was great to hear as well
1: i was gonna say that exact thing unsung heroes and that was what really stood out to me as well so many people like to comment on the social channels you know and it could be because they're not happy with something but it's just it's great to hear folks like this that sing their praise and and really um you know, highlight the contributions from teams like this that are excelling. And I think they are. I see it from the internal point of view as well. The support team at Nutanix has been great to work with.
0: And I don't want to give away too much of the interview. I just uh, want to quickly also mention and call out, um, Wes is actually going to be a speaker at the Nutanix Next conference this year. So that's uh, something exciting. You know, uh, most of us will get the chance to actually meet him in person. So we're looking forward to that. And um, just chatting about things, so that's that's going to be really cool. With that, let's get into the interview. Welcome, Wes Kennedy, to the show today. Hi, Wes. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Good. We're glad you're able to, to make this podcast. Really excited, Wes. Can you uh, give the folks a brief bit of background on yourself and
3: you know what you're up to these days? I'm a systems engineer for a large telemed company called CareNection. I also do a bit of blogging at whiskeykilo.com, and then I used to work at a company called BayCare in uh, Florida. So I've spent a majority of my career working as a systems engineer within the healthcare space.
0: Good stuff. We brought Wes onto the podcast for a number of reasons, and one in particular was a blog post that he wrote regarding Nutanix called Using Nutanix Two Years In, and it uh, was a real interesting post, caught the eye of a lot of folks. C- can you give the listeners just a quick summary on, on that post you wrote, Wes?
3: Yeah, when I started at Action, they were a little under a year in as far as using Nutanix here. I came in from an environment that was your standard 3-tier architecture, you know, compute, storage, network, all that. From going from that environment to an environment where I don't really have to manage any of that stuff, it was really an eye-opening experience for me where I don't I don't really have to Think about the infrastructure that I'm using to host applications. Now I can I can spend my time thinking about what my customers need and what what applications are running on my infrastructure. So for me, I I guess spending the last two years working with our Nutanix environment and or rather not really working with it, but I've found that I've got a lot more free time to focus on making sure that my my end users are happy with the way their applications are being delivered rather than making sure that everything is just running fine in the data center. So that's kind of what spurred me on to write the post. And, and, you know, I've had a lot of Twitter conversations back and forth with people because, you know, a lot of people are aware that we are a uh, Nutanix shop and they want to know what it's like to be a customer. So finally I decided, you know what, it's time to write this up and uh, get that out there for people to read.
0: Yeah, no, it was a great, great post, great, very insightful. And you know, if you can, can you sort of give folks an idea of what your uh, Nutanix environment uh, looks like, just to give people an idea of um, the size and scope?
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's not an overly large environment. We do have two data centers, one in Columbus, one in Las Vegas. Our Las Vegas location, we have a Nutanix NX thirty four fifty. And then we have a two thousand series block in Columbus, as well as two nodes of a thirty of a thirty fifty series. So we have a total of ten nodes across two clusters.
0: Great, it's good. Before moving to a converged infrastructure, um, you know, you, you're, in particular, your post mentioned you had a traditional environment, and I know a lot of folks have similar challenges. But were there any particular challenges you found in the traditional? Environment that, let's say, were lessened in a in a converged environment, or maybe disappeared, if you will.
3: I guess one of the largest things is when we want to expand our environment, we don't have to necessarily look at uh, capital expenditures as much anymore. Uh, we can look at what our current budget has as far as operational expenses and use that to expand our environment. Other than that, you know, when I when you go to expand a traditional three tier architecture, and okay, so. I need X number of new HP hosts. Okay, cool. Well, what does that mean for the SAN? You know, can we handle mm-hmm. that much uh, workload hitting that bad boy, or do we need to expand that a little bit more? So it becomes less of a numbers game for us, and we don't have to teeter that line of you know, do we have enough SAN or do we have enough uh, compute, all that. It just, it, it, it's all coming all at once for us, so when we expand, we expand. We don't have to think about which side we're expanding anymore.
0: Right. I think you even mentioned in the post you had challenges with the top of rack switches. Do you, you want to elaborate on that a bit?
3: Yeah, a little bit. The, the the switching we were using in my previous gig was just not up to snuff for virtualization. I'm when you've got four one gig interconnects between your compute nodes and your storage, and then you've got six of those guys hitting your storage, and then you've got eight one gig uplinks from your SAN. You know, you're going to be flooding those interfaces pretty quick, and the way the hyperconverged infrastructure works for us, there's not actually a lot of data that travels over the wire anymore. So we, we worry less about our top of rack switches because our, our workloads are more localized and then it's just the, the replication of the data that's hitting the wire or the actual production workload that's hitting the wire. So we don't have to worry about, you know, is our switching good enough or anything like that. Obviously we do have some pretty killer top of rack switches now, but it's, it's not as big of a concern. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's uh, that's something that may maybe in the message sometimes gets overlooked. That exact scenario that you just painted, I think is a great great story to share with with folks.
3: It's really nice too because, you know, no longer are uh, are the uh, SQL admins coming to me and saying, you know, why are why are you just flooding the network and yeah. I can't get anything through. I don't I don't deal with that anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: I was just having a chat with Matt Day yesterday um, about some similar uh, topics. And, and, you know, one of the things we were really kind of whittling it down to is is agility and the ability to scale. And it sounds like that's kind of, you know, your viewpoint as
3: well on that. Our ability to scale has been really important for us because, you know, we try to run on a very tight budget. Um, We've got just kind of a crazy way that this business grows. And for us, we didn't want to have to think about, you know, when we need to make those purchases, you don't want to have to deal with them landing within certain sales cycles or within certain budget frames or things like that. For us, when we need to expand, we expand the environment and not having to worry so much about expanding everything else that goes along with it. If we need more compute, then we stack in a few more nodes, but we also gain more storage and you know all of that at the same time. And that's, that's really powerful for us because along the, you know, along the way we may see, oh, now we need more storage, but we actually already have that. So it's a lot easier for us to expand our environment quickly as opposed to, all right, now we've got to bring in a sand guy because we don't have a storage engineer. We're, we're doing this with a very small team. You know, the ability for us to not have a storage engineer is actually really nice for us. It allows us to use our employees for delivering that service to our customers as opposed to worrying about the infrastructure.
1: So central management plays a big part as well,
3: then. Huh? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Wes, I, I thought it was interesting what you just said about not
2: having a storage guy. In some shops, right, that's hugely political. I don't think anybody misses having to, you know, carve out LUNs and things like that, but... Now, when we get to hyperconverged infrastructure, right? We've got the servers and the storage together, and and sometimes that becomes a political battle. I guess I won't ask how that goes in your shop, since you said you don't have a storage guy. But does that change the nature of what you do from day to day then, or how do you see your your career going? I guess one of the things is you don't have to worry about the the storage guy in the current with the current setup.
3: So I think I think there were a couple questions in there. I guess I, I guess yeah, the, the, the yeah I'm I'm terrible. <laughs> Yes, there were a couple <laughs> of questions there. I'm That's all right. Uh, actually, I apologize. I there,
2: there wasn't even one question in there. It was more just kind of a general statement. But anyway, all right.
3: Well, I'll de- I'll deduce a couple questions out of that. The the political battle would be an interesting one. At my previous shop, we didn't have a storage guy there either, but we actually contracted that out to our vendor. Not having a storage engineer has is, is, has you know saved us a little bit. We haven't had to spend that. That cost on a fully loaded employee on a storage engineer, but if we were to hire that same position, we could use them for other things. So a, a storage engineer is not strictly just a storage engineer. They know they know enough about virtualization. They know all these different things. So I guess if you do have a shop where all somebody does is storage all day long, there's still going to be things to manage. And if you're a, you're in a shop that that's you know you have a storage engineer and it is a full-time job and that's all they do is carve out lawns all day. There's plenty of other things for them to do. So if you do go in and you replace your entire three-tier architecture with Nutanix, you're not cutting somebody out of a job. You're giving them the ability to focus on other things and grow themselves. So yes, if you look at it in the strict confines of this is what this guy does all day long, it could get a little hairy and you could have some issues there. But if, if the person that you have in that position is willing to learn new things, it's going to expand them and expand their, their knowledge and their career anyways. I think it'll work out in the end, but it's the way the, the message gets delivered to those customers. And do they understand that we're not trying to replace you. We're just trying to allow you to focus on other things.
0: Right. And and th- that actually dovetails into my next question. Um, I know you were in a w- wide variety of tier one workloads on on Nutanix in a, in a virtualized environment. Did you get any pushback from other teams insisting that their workloads stay on an, uh, on a physical environment?
3: The, the environment we've built here was an entirely greenfield environment. So what we took and we built was a fresh environment on Nutanix. So we, we brought in a completely new platform at that point. So there are still legacy applications that are still on physical boxes because It's delivered in an appliance form, but we're working on phasing those workloads out. As far as production workloads today that are required to be in a physical environment, whether that's because of what the vendor says or because of what another team member says or something of that nature, uh, in our environment, that doesn't currently exist. Uh, We don't have any workloads that we're required to run in a physical form.
0: Good. Are you folks running the latest uh, version of uh, the Nutanix operating system?
3: Currently, we're not, actually. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that. Uh, We're one revision behind. Yes, it's a no outage update, you know, and all that. But we do still tend to perform our NOS updates in an outage window. Hmm. Whether or not we require the need for the outage, we've never needed that. But just as an extra precaution and because our security guy likes it that way, that's how we do it. So I have not actually been in the office during an outage window in order to perform that update yet. It is in our next outage window, so in the next few weeks.
0: Yeah. Are there any um, particular features you're looking forward to in, in, in the, the next release so you, know, so you can take advantage of?
3: Oh, holy cow, yes. The, uh, <laughs> hi- the yeah. hypervisor upgrade. We are all about that right now. We're, we uh, we've that's been holding exciting. up our five one to five five upgrade for a while in Columbus, and uh, this just makes it that much easier.
0: Wow! That, yeah, that's that's really exciting. I mean, uh, one click upgrade is it's it, you know you kind of think about it, and you think that can't be can't be right, but there's videos on YouTube already, folks actually doing it. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting.
3: I'm really stoked about that one, especially now that. The 10-gig Nick on our 2000 series has been wrapped up into the 5.5 five ISO. We don't have to have a custom ISO to do our 2000 series anymore, so it'll just make it that much easier. I'm, pre- I'm pretty stoked about it, if you can't tell.
2: <laughs> yeah. Hey, Wes, I'll follow up on my last non-question. Okay. Which is, at your shop, what is the role of IT and its relationship to the business? How has that changed in your career? How do you see it
3: changing in the future? The current company that I'm working for we have a sister company that we provide direct IT support for. So we, we were actually spun out of a company called Language Access Network. Uh, they provide remote video interpretation to about 300 hospitals nationwide. And because of the private medical-grade network that we've built as Care Action, or as the IT team within Language Access Network, we decided that we could leverage that for other telehealth purposes. So we spun out. And we're providing a direct, uh, service as a consultant essentially for our, our sister company. So for us, we are providing infrastructure management to those, uh, companies. So I guess you've got our sister companies. Uh, there is more than one, but anyway, so we, we are a consultant for them. Now, as far as what that does in the future, in the future of IT, you know, I think, I think it depends on the, the, the arena you work in. But for us, if we continue to grow, You know, it's going to be on a consultant basis for a number of different companies. It's been an interesting environment because we're providing a service to our customers. And the fact that I don't have to spend half my billable hours maintaining an an infrastructure is really helpful for that. So more of my billables can be directly towards customers as opposed to maintaining our internal stuff.
2: It's interesting. Also, VMware for years has been talking about IT as a service and trying to talk traditional IT providers or IT departments you know, into behaving more like service providers and consultants because I think there's a psychological shift that happens, right? If you're just the IT department and you're taking care of your gear, you have a tendency to get proprietary. I think I, that's my personal theory, right? You kind of sit back and you're like, you, you become the department of no. Like this is my stuff and the business is kind of in, impinging on, on me uh, and making my life uh, harder, so I'm going to say no. Whereas I think if you move to a, a service orientated stance and you incur internal people as your covers, it, it forces a psychological change in IT departments to make them become more responsive and make them say yes more often. I don't know. Do you think I'm full of BS, Wes? Have you worked at other places that have
3: that have (laughs) maybe uh,
2: not been as service oriented?
3: You're dead on in that statement. Yeah, the uh, the last role there was a lot of uh, Department of No. It was absolutely our standard answer. Here, it's it's a lot easier for us to say yes. One because that's what they pay us to say, but the other is because we're agile enough that we can provide those services easily. Yes, it may take a little bit more architecture in, the, in you know in the front run, but you know, we're not going to take shortcuts. We're not going to do those things. We're gonna, we're going to take the time to do that do that correctly. We're seeing that change in our business right now. We've we've been in firefight mode, which another one of my blog posts recently was talking about for a long time now, and we're finally at a point where we're we're no longer firefighting and we're finally just stabilizing our all the environments that we're in, and the firefight mode had nothing to do with the actual infrastructure we're running on. It was all application layer. But the truth of the matter was, if our infrastructure wasn't solid, we would still be in firefight mode. So for for us, since we've been enabled to be so agile, it makes it a lot easier for us to go to our customers and say yes. So as far as IT departments as a service, I think it's I think it's a brilliant way for IT departments to be viewed and it also enables them to not stay a cost center. IT departments are generally regarded as a cost center but in the end those IT departments could actually start making the company's money because they can offer their services to other places as well.
0: This is great. This is the second podcast where the answer has been yes what's the question. So that's that's you know we're maybe setting a new trend for IT departments um, going forward. Maybe we should create a t-shirt or a badge or something. That's that's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to I'd like to talk about certifications and I know Wes you have a Nutanix Platform Professional cert NPP. You know, I'd like to get your feedback on, you know, uh, what your thoughts are on how how important certs are for the IT professional and as well your sort of journey gaining that certification and any tips, you know, you have for other folks considering gaining that that certification, you know, like, like do you do you actually need the actual gear to, to to sort of play with to, to get the cert or, or you know, or were there labs that you took advantage of, resources or anything like that? So I'd be, I know it's a converged question, <laughs> if you will, but I'd like to get your feedback
3: on that. My journey to the MPP was a little bit different than most, I think. I I attended training, uh, advanced administrative training with Nutanix uh, going on two years ago, and that was before they were actually offering the MPP certification. So I know the normal track right now is if you go as a customer or a partner or as anybody to the the administrative training, then you would often follow up and take that MPP certification test. Uh, Since it wasn't offered at the time, I went for administrative training and moved on. It was a great class. You know, I learned a lot. Since I'd already been working with Nutanix for about six months at that point, it was a lot easier for me because I didn't have to grasp the core concepts. But once I took that class and I came back, I I learned some things that I didn't know about the environment I was working in, and I was able to improve some of our services that we were running. I think certifications are important, whether it's with Nutanix or it's with Cisco or Juniper or whoever else. I think as a whole, you always end up learning something you didn't know. So I'm a big advocate for learning more. It doesn't need to be in a traditional setting in a school or even through certifications as long as you're continuing to push yourself, which is a big majority why I blog is because it forces me to make sure the stuff I'm putting out there is correct. As far as the certifications are concerned, I think it's very important for us to use that as a metric to drive ourselves forward. Whether or not you use it on your resume to get yourself into a new job is a whole nother story, but to drive yourself forward, I think that's the most important piece of certifications. As far as the Nutanix cert itself, I think there was benefit to me going to the class. I think there's benefit from me taking the test because I certainly realized that there was a lot of leakage in those two years of knowledge, or that year of knowledge be- between when I took the test and when I uh, was in class. But I definitely appreciate Taking the test, earning the certificate and moving forward. I think having some labs for people that are registered for the MPP to log into some actual labs on hardware. Say we remoted in and we had Prism and we had vCenter and things like that. So we can play with some of these things. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a big benefit. I know that costs money and that may mean that, you know, earning those certifications may start costing money, but I think that would be worth it in the end. I think having labs outside of our production our, our production instances is pretty important because I know I, I would often find myself tooling around on this on the NCLI and saying eh, I don't think I'll run this command <laughs> <laughs> so anyways that's kind of where I stand on that I've heard some rumors of people asking for a community edition and things like that. I think it's something that needs to be looked at solidly and I think that would be a great thing to help grow the next community and uh, and allowing people to build that and use it for building their knowledge around the product and not being afraid of breaking something. Sure. Music
1: to my ears. <laughs> so you talk about the Nutanix support team and, and working closely with them in your blog posts. Could you give us some more insight into your experience uh, working with this team, like a juicy story or something?
3: <laughs> you want a juicy story? Maybe. Oh, man. Ugh. That Jeez. one. <laughs> I think the juiciest the stories get is uh, when the NOS updates were actually command line scripts that were run. I would still get Nutanix support on the phone even though I was more than qualified to run a single script and then sit back and watch because I could. I would always call them, get them on the line during our outage window. I'd probably land somebody in Australia and we'd get on the phone, we'd start the update, we'd chat for a little bit. Put the phone on mute. Put my feet up on the desk. Grab a beer and watch some Family Guy or something like that. I mean, that that's how most of our upgrades have gone, and our support has been absolutely unreal. It's not something that you get with Dell or HP or I. I haven't experienced NetApp support, so I can't really comment on it. But I, I don't. I don't call in and and hear you know. Well, did you reboot it? No, no, I never tried that. I'm you know I haven't been in this industry for a while, so you know. <laughs> um, I really appreciate that the engineers we get on the other end of the line actually assume that you know what you're talking about. If you're calling them, if you've provided them information, and they've actually done a little bit of research before they get back to you, too, which is always nice. They know what they're doing when they get on the line with you, or they know what they need to look for. That's not something you always get. I've always appreciated the fact, too, that when I've filed a ticket or something like that, if it's a simple fix, they'll often just send me a link and say, you know, here's the doc. If you feel comfortable running it, it's pretty simple. If not, give us a call. We'll take care of it. You know, for quick, simple fixes, there's no reason for me to get on a WebEx, get you guys connected and all that stuff. And they, they know that it's just as easy for me to run that. Part of that may be because of my history with the support team over there. The other part may be just because they they trust that their customers know what they're doing. But it's really refreshing to not be treated like tier one help desk when I call into a support team.
1: Yeah, it's really more custom.
3: Right, right.
0: By the way, just a small plug, and I and I did write this down just so I, I would get it right. Just to build on what what you're saying about the support team, the the support team did win this year the Omega North Face Award for customer satisfaction and loyalty for the second year in a row. So kudos to those folks for um, working hard on on helping customers um, work through their any you know issues or uh, upgrades etc. So that's great.
3: It was certainly well earned from my experience.
0: Yeah, uh, Wes. I know you're uh, a speaker at the Nutanix Next conference this year. Do you want to give folks a little sneak peek into your uh, your your talk?
3: If I had a sneak peek to give, I, I would <laughs> I, w- I would do that. I am notoriously a procrastinator, so. Uh- I actually have nothing to sneak peek right now.
0: Oh, no, that's okay.
3: <laughs> I imagine it will be something to an expansion of what I'm currently talking about today. So, I know that my experience as a customer has been, you know, not an unusual one, but certainly one that I've been very vocal about and it's something I'm I'm happy to share. So, I'm sure that will be intertwined with anything else that we decide to speak on. So, sure.
0: I think what they say is it's still in development, so that's uh, that's a good way of uh, yes. putting it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and for folks that don't know, you know, Wes is also he also jumps in on the next community. I see Wes answering questions, uh, providing links to different resources. So we're we're always grateful for uh, the community interaction that you provide on the next community, Wes.
3: Yeah, I need I need to get in there more often. I'm trying to drive you know more people to it. You know, as I'm talking to people on Twitter and things like that, I make sure that they know about it. And I'm hoping that, you know, we can, we can keep building a community there because there's certainly a a huge number of installs growing across the, across the world. And, you know, if we can get more people in there, it'll make it easier for us to solve problems and also to just meet some cool people. So.
0: Absolutely. I might put you on the spot here, uh, Wes, but for folks that are Maybe interested in um, hyperconverged technology, Nutanix in particular. Um, any resources you can suggest to folks, or any kind, you know, any any blogs that you find very uh, insightful on on the topics?
3: Honestly, if you're into Twitter. Follow hashtag Nutanix. There's always people blogging out different things. Obviously, you can't go without talking about Stephen's uh, Bible, the Nutanix Bible. I have found a lot of help from the whiteboarding sessions that have been put up there. So, you know, if you ever have a question why this works this way or why it's happening or what what is actually going on behind the scenes here, hit up the Nutanix Bible because there's probably an, a whiteboard session on it that will explain it, and you'll walk away saying, "Huh." all right, now I understand why they did it this way.
0: Yeah, great, great resources. And the videos, you know, uh, um, myself in particular, I I learn a lot through visuals. So videos and things like that really um, make an impact on me when learning. So yeah, I I completely agree.
3: Yeah, especially when you put somebody in front of a whiteboard. That's where I learn the best is when I stand in front of a whiteboard and tear something apart. Seeing somebody else do the same thing makes it easier for me to understand it, so...
1: Good. Good. So just wanted to mention, you know, we just launched the dot next conference call for proposals for the unconference track and it would be great. I mean, based on what you're saying now and kind of your experience and everything, I think you should definitely propose a couple of unconventional sessions, whiteboarding sessions or something.
2: Okay. You were talking about your role as a a customer telling your story and, that's been, I imagine, an interesting uh, set of experiences. You had said that some people had mentioned the politics around storage, but have there been any other questions or misconceptions that people have asked you that people are wondering about as they're wondering about getting into hyperconverged?
3: Not so much around the technology or you know political things, but there's definitely been some questions and some people not fully understanding what's going on behind the scenes with their data, you know, replication things like that. So, it's always been interesting for me to actually discuss it with them. Recently, we we actually had a customer that came by and or a future customer that wanted to see it in the data center. So, we went over to our data center cuz it's a couple minutes away. And when I showed them how it's all connected and they they go okay, now I'm starting to understand. And when I say, you know, these five disks or these four disks are directly connected to Node 1, which is passed through to your CVM, you know, then they go, oh. So I don't think there's been a lot of misconceptions as far as hyperconverged infrastructure as a whole. But when people get to hear the story from somebody else other than a sales guy, I think they also see, you know, the lights start to tick and realize that the stuff's as good as they're saying.
2: Yeah. Was there any particular moment where the light bulb went on for you as you were getting into it? I mean, when I first heard that people were starting to put direct-to-track storage again in servers, I thought people were nuts, right? We just spent 20 years <laughs> ripping it out. <laughs> right. And then I, I started to understand, and then oh, some light bulbs went off for me. I don't know. Any particular light bulb moment for you?
3: I think the light bulb moment for me was when I was building the dashboards for our Knox screens. And I started to actually look at our network interfaces and realized – I'm only pushing about 200 meg through these guys. Why is that? I was thinking about the numbers that I had at BayCare and and the the gigs and gigs and gigs of data that we were pumping through those interfaces. And, real, and I'm thinking, how is this working? And then I and then I stopped myself. I watched the video on the website again because apparently I didn't let it sink in the first time. Then I went to my whiteboard and I drew it out and I go, oh, because the data is local. <laughs> <laughs> so I think once I realized that the data tends to be local, and then it's replicated across the cluster, that was the final light bulb moment for me.
2: How do you like Prism? How do you like the Nutanix uh, management interfaces?
3: I like Prism a lot. I called out uh, Sally Designs in the uh, blog post. They did a fantastic job on the rebuild of it. I, I didn't really care for the previous version a whole lot. Obviously, it was pretty and things like that, but the fact that we have all the analytics that we have, the alerting and all of that, it's, it's really powerful. Pretty, too. It is very pretty, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, great. Wes, thanks for uh, making the time today. We really appreciate you um, joining us on the podcast. If folks want to connect with you on social, what ways can they do that?
3: So I'm out on Twitter, at whiskey, without the E, underscore kilo, K-I-L-O, and whiskeykilo.com, W-H-I-S-K-Y, kilo, K-I-L-O.com. And your Nutanix
0: Next uh, ID? <laughs> uh,
3: I believe it's Whiskey Kilo. I'd have to check. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're right. You're right. <laughs> so thanks again, and um, thank you.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Great chat, Wes. Thanks.
3: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow Nutanix on Twitter for the latest news and announcements. Subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And if you're so inclined, please give us a review on iTunes, a rating or a review. would really appreciate that. And if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or have a topic idea, you can email us at communitynutanix.com. At I'm Angela Luciani.
1: I'm Laura Whalen.
0: And I'm John Mark Troyer. See you next time.